0: Father, we come before you, before your word, with these hard words from Jesus that offer us life but are also a little scary. I pray for the preaching of your word, that it would go forward uh, with power by your spirit and not any other power. I pray, Father, you would do what you, only you can do, convict our hearts and lead us uh, to the road that leads to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after undergrad, I uh, got a humanities degree, so I was looking for any way to make some money, and I got a job at uh, a hospital cleaning surgical instruments. I got the job because my dad was a, a surgeon, was a doctor at this hospital, so I kind of had an in- inward track to this great, glorified, bloody dishwashing job. That's essentially what it was. And One of the side perks of being my dad's son in this job, he he worked uh, in, in the hospital, operated in the ORs, uh, was that sometimes he would have different uh, pharmaceutical reps bring in lunch, cater lunch for his, uh, his entire OR staff or whatever. I don't know how it works, but that, that's, that happened. I don't know the exact economics of the business model. But, so, he, and so he would text me and say, Hey, c- come down and put your order in because the rep's bringing, uh bringing food. And it was good food, too. And so I'd come in and just like write down whatever I wanted. It'd show up, and then he'd say, Hey, the food's here. And I would just take my lunch break and go down and, and eat this delicious food that I got purely because I was my dad's son. I don't know if you know the hierarchy of hospital workers, but instrument techs are pretty low. <laughs> uh, they, 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 they it's kind of crazy because, you know, sterilized instruments are kind of important for, you know, not dying, but they're kind of on par with dishwashers in the hospital. So I didn't have a whole lot of swagger, a lot of re- reasons to stand on my own merit, uh, but I would waltz in and eat with my dad and his partner and this pharmaceutical rep and all the nurses and, and OR techs and people who had, you know, kind of real technical skills. And it was always that awkward moment where it's like, oh, what do you do here? And it's like, ah, I'm a, I'm an instrument tech as I eat my steak or whatever, whatever the feast was that particular day. And I tell that story because my standing, my uh, access to that food, was purely based on grace because of whose son I was. I had no merit of my own to get that call down. To the that particular break room and eat that delicious food for free. It was purely because of who I am, and I don't know if you're like me, but being in a place where I belong for no other reason than grace—like I haven't earned my spot there—feels super uncomfortable. Feels super uncomfortable when you, when it's something where like you've achieved it. You know, I am at the honors roll luncheon where I worked hard and made the honors roll, so I deserve to be here. That feels way more natural to me. That, that feels way more reasonable. But what Jesus is showing us today, when he's talking about the, the narrow gates and the wide gates, is that the only way we enter the kingdom of God, the, only, the, the two paths that we're looking at, the, the one that leads to life, is the one where we embrace what I embrace to get free food which is grace, which is being accepted and belonging, not for anything that we've done, actually in spite of what we've done. We're calling this, this last uh, chapter, the series, the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Show Me How to Live, where Jesus is showing us how to live. And these last few passages in this chapter show two, two paths, or two trees, or two houses. There's this duality in the last chapter here, and all of them get at this heart of grace, this heart of dependency in grace. There's just no other way to be a person of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a child of God, than to receive it for free, by grace, in spite of what we've done. Now, I study this passage. The, the language Jesus uses to describe the gate and the road, the, the broad one and the narrow one, is just really fascinating. And so the main point today we're going to try to unpack this. Is The gate to the good life crushes us with grace. The gate to the good life crushes us with grace. What I want us to see is that in order to enter into the narrow gate, in order to receive by grace the goodness of knowing God our Father, we need to be crushed. We, there's, there needs to be part of us that is crushed. Crushed. I want to place this passage in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus says two things that kind of shape the Sermon on the Mount. The first one, if you're following along, uh, Matthew 4, 17. Jesus is kicking off his ministry, and he says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is Jesus's big, flashy message. Jesus shows up God in the flesh and his brilliant phrase is repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent because life with God under his rule is now available to us. If you think about the word repentance, it's pretty scary. It's not necessarily a happy word. It's not a word you want people to tell you to do because it means that you've done something wrong. But Jesus says it's good news to be called to repent, to embrace our brokenness. And then if you look at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's easy to see the Sermon on the Mount flowing from Jesus' message to repent. Jesus says, repent, because the kingdom of God is near. And then he gathers his followers and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount to his people, to his followers, to show them what that looks like. And he kicks it off in Matthew 5, verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit means spiritually bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. We have no hope of ever breaking even, being in the black, being independent, paying back our debts. This isn't like, oh, I got some lingering student loans in the spiritual sense that I'm chipping away at. This is like there's no hope. There's no hope to pay anyone back. We are hopelessly in debt. And he says people who embrace this level of spiritual poverty, they are the ones that experience life with God. And I think it's easy to connect this to repentance. We see in repentance, we have to be aware of what we need to repent of, the, the extent of our brokenness and how, much, how, how little hope we have on our own to make ourselves right. He doesn't say, repent and try harder. He says, repent, period. And then as Jesus plays this out, he kind of brings us down low. If you're one of my followers and you're repenting, repentance is something that you do on the regular. You're embracing your spiritual poverty. And then he gives us this sermon where he says all kinds of really crazy stuff. But one of the fascinating aspects of the Sermon on the Mount is that when he, whenever he does a comparison, it's almost always an internal comparison. Like when he says, uh, when you give to the poor, don't do it like this, don't do it flashy, so people see you and praise you. Instead, do it, do it so only your father can see, so your father will reward you. He's not saying, my followers give to the poor and people not following me don't give to the poor. No, he's saying there's there's space for both my followers and people who don't follow me to give to the poor. The difference then is the motivation that we do it. And he d- so does the same with prayer. He said, even pagans pray, and they think they'll be heard by their many words. But God knows what you need. God, your Father, knows what you need. So pray simply. Pray like this. You see what I'm saying? He's not saying do this and don't do this necessarily. He's saying the mark of, of my followers is an inter- internal mark. It's one where our, our hearts are shaped by grace from our spiritual poverty. And as we'll see the next few weeks, as Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he, he follows this duality. Right here he's talking about a gate and a road, but then he goes on to talk about a tree and its fruit, and then he goes on to say say this example, if you flip uh, to page fifteen o six this is chapter seven verse twenty one we see the same duality, the same dynamic playing out, where people are doing the same activities, but some of them aren't doing it as jesus's followers matthew seven twenty one says not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, the essence there, the difference there what, is not what they're doing because they're doing good church religious activity, but they're, they're not doing it from a place of grace. It's the same with the tree and its fruit. It's not a question of, it's not a question of is the tree producing fruit. It's what kind of fruit flows from grace. Jesus is getting at the inner person. He's focusing on grace. Both the narrow gates, the tree and its fruit, uh, the people who say Lord, Lord, uh, and then we look at, at building a house on the sand versus the rock. Jesus is kind of doing a one-two punch of grace at the end. He starts with spiritual poverty. we got to embrace our brokenness and receive grace. And then he ends just going over the top with all these parables and examples on how much grace defines the way of Christ. Jesus is showing us how to live. He says, it is by grace, period. Because what we see Jesus saying is distinct from any other way to live, any other way apart from the way of Jesus, has you giving God a perfect record. You see that in the passage we just read. They say, we did all these things, so let us into your kingdom. Even though they were good things, they were church things, they were Christian things, They were done in order to give God a record so that he owes us. This is how all religion, really all of life functions, apart from the way of Jesus by grace. That God is up here and we are down here, and we do things to try to get to God. Which is why there's all kinds of silly things, like all roads lead to God. He's on top of the mountain. Just pick which side you want to climb up. If religion is true, in which that we earn our way to the top of the mountain, then that might be true. But that's not how it works. Instead, the gospel says that we're spiritually bankrupt, that we have no hope of making it to the top. And instead, in Christ, God gives us a perfect record. We have nothing to offer, no way to get to the top of the mountain. And God comes to us in the person of Christ. And in the cross, he dresses us in Jesus' righteousness, the Bible says, and gives us his perfect record. So we can see that this is so crucial. This is so, there's just no other way to be a follower of Jesus than to embrace this way of grace. This uh, passage on gates, narrow gates and wide gates, helps us see this. The first point, first point says, enter through the narrow gate, for wi- wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. The first thing we need to know about the wide gate is that it's where all of us start. It includes Everyone. This is not just for the worldly people who are out doing whatever drugs and sleeping around and openly blaspheming God or whatever comes to your mind when you think of those people, those people out there, the people who are surely anti-God. But it also includes religious folks like us. Whether you grew up in the church, you're born on the front pew, or you were raised by atheists, Atheist scientists that, that mock God. We all start on the wide road because both religion and a re- open rejection of God both reject God. Sometimes this passage has been interpreted as the straight and narrow. Keep the straight and narrow. Cross your T's and dot your I's. Watch your language. Don't live like those people. So it might be easy to see Jesus saying, don't mess up. Walk the straight and narrow. because, And, and don't be licentious. Don't, don't be worldly. But what we have to see is that both of those are rejecting God, whereas there's the open rejection and saying, I'm going to live life according to me. I'm going to make myself okay according to me, and God doesn't exist. That's exactly what religion does. Even though we might come to church, we might serve in the church, we might do all kinds of church activities, we're still saying, I don't need you, God. I'm going to give you stuff. They both reject life with God in order to try to control their own lives. Both religion and irreligion, both worldliness and a, a churchy kind of gospelist religion, both reject God and trusting Him, trusting by grace. Again, you see this in the people who say, Lord, Lord. They say, didn't we do all this stuff? When all of us stand before God, what will we say? Will we be like the people in this passage that say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all this stuff? Look at all this stuff that I did. And Jesus says, go away, I never knew you. (coughs) Knowing God by grace is the way that we are accepted. In these passages that follow, we're not going to go into them because we're going to preach on them the next few weeks. They show us the, the type of destruction. First, we have the building the house on the sand, the wise builders and the foolish builders. And this shows us security, that the true security is found in the gospel of grace, but, when we, but that doesn't feel secure to us, right? I had a roommate once for a while, and he was uh, a new Christian, and he was saved out of Islam. He was from Somalia, And he was going through a lot of hard stuff. He essentially got kicked out of his family. And I remember having conversations with him where he was so uncomfortable in Christianity because he said, in Islam, I know exactly what to do to get my 70 virgins. It's very clear. I don't have to believe anything or trust anything. I just do this stuff. Christianity, there's nothing that I can do to make it secure. This is him grappling with the essence of our faith, the essence of grace. But this parable of the people who build a house on the sand, on a not firm foundation, is what Jesus would say to people who would look for security, either eternal salvation or security in life, in their own strength. Is that it's foolishness. It might happen quickly, it might make sense on the front end, might be softer than building on, at your house on the rock, but when times get hard, the rain comes down, the stream grows, the wind, winds blow, it'll, it'll blow down because none of us can hold the line. None of us can walk, walk the line, like Johnny Cash said, perfectly. So ultimately, we're, we're placing our house in something very insecure. If that's security where we're doing things to feel secure, what if we are doing like the people that we read about who are are looking at their behavior for justification? How fragile is that? How good are we at keeping a great track record? Whatever category you like to look at. Maybe it's like, I don't drink. I haven't touched a drop in my whole entire life, and that's my thing. Jesus says when we break one command of the law, we've broken the whole law. So when we pick one little thing and we focus on our behavior there, how fragile is that? Because there's all this other stuff that that we aren't doing. We might not drink at all, but we're super anxious and angry all the time. We might need a drink to calm us down. Jesus says, don't be anxious, and we focus on one little sin. So we look at our behaviors. How fragile is that? You, You get one part of your, if you're making a castle out of your behaviors, you get one side up, and then the the other side falls down. We can't do it on our behaviors. Our idolatries are incredibly vulnerable. I was reading this morning in Isaiah 44, and it's, it's one of my favorite passages because it shows God's sarcasm. God is actually sarcastic in the Bible, and he's mocking people who would make an idol. You cut down a tree, and half of it you use to make bread. The other half you carve into an idol, and you try to set it up, and you put it in a shrine, and you worship it. One, one part you burn to keep warm. The other part you hope will rescue you. When we see the, the wide road that we are all on, the wide gate that we all are going towards, all of humanity is going towards the wide gate and the, wide, the broad road that leads towards destruction, it's this incredible, fragile place where we're all alone. And we have no security. I wanted to flesh out what kind of destruction Jesus is talking here because I think we hear destruction in just kind of lofty biblical language like fire from heaven or something like that. And I believe the destruction that Jesus is getting at here is isolated nothingness. This is the second point. The wide way leads to isolated nothingness. If the way of Jesus is the way of grace the way of dependency on the God of the universe who looks on us in favor because of Christ. The wide way that, that leads to isolated nothingness is where we, by our own volition, become isolated into, in, into paranoia, into, into fear and anxiety, into a ferocious desire to control our lives that pushes people away. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Great Divorce. It's like a very short little parable that shows a lot about what human nature is and the, the true desires of the human heart. And he, he paints a, a, a parable, a, a metaphor, of an aspect of hell. And it's where this gray city where it's always raining a little bit, and everybody, uh, everybody has the ability to, just by thinking it, conjure up new houses and stuff. The only problem is the houses don't quite keep you dry from the rain and the stuff isn't quite fully what you imagined. But how he describes this gray city is that these people just expand further and further and further out because they can get anything they want. It's all up to them. And so when they have a conflict with another person, there's no reason to to duke it out. So I'll just go over here and build a better house. This is the the isolated nothingness of life apart from God is that our relationships break down. We push people away because they bring vulnerability. It talks about two people in the gray city who want to find Napoleon, the historical figure Napoleon. And they travel for 500,000 years and they find Napoleon in the middle of nowhere by himself in a massive French mansion pacing back and forth, muttering to himself about some grievance that happened to him by one of his generals. I think this is a, a helpful picture to take the biblical phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth into real life. Where you're so fixated and bitter and frustrated and hurt and you just stay there. Having the monkey mind and muttering to yourself. It talks about the wide road and the spacious path it's because we, we inevitably drift, up, drift apart from God and from others when we resist grace. Because to experience grace, to trust someone, to trust God, it requires vulnerability, to let go of control. In some sense, to, to experience intimacy is a narrowness. If you want to experience true intimacy in marriage, then you have to have a very narrow relationship with only one person. There's a, a spacious destruction when we reject grace and we, wanna, we want to be God and we want true independence. In this example of the gray city, Napoleon was truly independent. He could conjure anything that he needed up. And he was isolated 500,000 years away from the nearest person muttering to himself. And I hope this is helpful to see the, the kind of destruction that we're talking about. The, the, what, what is the, the destination for all of us if we reject grace? Let's talk about the good stuff. Talk about the narrow gate. It was super interesting to unpack the words Jesus uses here. Our pew Bibles use the word narrow to describe this gate. If you have the, the old KJV, it talks about the straight gate. And it kind of brings up connotations of dire straits, this kind of constricting pressure kind of strait. What we see, as Jesus is talking about, is let's just imagine the picture of all of humanity on a wide road. It's big, it's broad, it's well-lit, all our friends are on it. And then we see a narrow gate that looks like we might not make it through. Looks like we're going to have to start like, going sideways and shove our arm through and our shoulder, and like we might actually just get stuck. It, it, it almost kind of defies our minds that we could actually even make it through. Do you see the kind of the miracle that we would anyone would ever turn and look and say, I want to go through that gate. This is what Jesus is saying. This is the miracle of salvation that we would go towards the narrow gate. I'm using this word crush because what what I want us to see is that in order to embrace the way of Jesus and grace, is that ourselves need to be crushed. Jesus actually, or the scripture actually uses the term. Die. We have to die to ourselves. This is kind of the connotation to get through the grace gate, to get through the narrow ways that we have to die to ourselves and our independency, our self sufficiency, and our self righteousness. Flip over to Romans six. This is the only other passage we're gonna look at. You can keep your finger in Matthew seven. I know we've been hopping around a lot recently. Romans 6, you're in the Pew Bible, 1754. I think this passage shows us a little bit of what Jesus is talking about. A narrow gate that crushes us, maybe to death, but in the end it leads to life. Romans 6, verses 5 through 8. If we've been united with him, Jesus, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. One of the beautiful and kind of gut-wrenching paradoxes of Christianity is that it calls us to come and die to ourselves, to let our old way of being the wide roadway of being, where we want everything on our terms and we want to control everything. We want to earn our way into the club, if you will. Must be crucified, Romans said. Our old self is crucified with Jesus. So we can become like him in his resurrection. There's two ways that we need to die to ourselves. Two ways that the grace, great, grace gate crushes us. We must die to self-sufficiency. House on, this is kind of the house on the sand I- I- idea. I'm going to build my house wherever I want. I don't care about the foundation. The view is way better on the beach. The foundation of, of the house is, is whatever we put our sufficiency in. What makes us sufficient? What makes us enough? Is it our self? Is it our behavior? Is it our control? Our financial planning? What is it that we put our foundation in? And the grace gate shows us that anything other than the grace of God is, is quicksand and will fall apart. We talked about self-sufficiency a lot last week. It's on the website. You can go listen to it. But the grace gate crushes our our self-sufficiency. Where once we gloried in our ability to be self-sufficient, we now uh, mourn it and repent of it and come to be more and more dependent on our Father in Heaven who knows what we need. The second way we have to die, the grace gate crushes us, is self-righteousness. And this is embracing what Jesus has been talking about the whole Sermon on the Mount, which is our spiritual bankruptcy. This is what Jesus is talking about to the people who say, Lord, Lord, look at all that we did. The Lord, Lord, look at all that we did to earn our way into heaven. That part in us, which is in all of us, gets crushed by the gate of grace, embracing our spiritual bankruptcy. The narrow gate is grace-based adoption. If you're filling in the blanks. Grace-based adoption is the narrow gate. Let me read this passage to you. I promised you you wouldn't have to flip anywhere, and I forgot about this one. It's Ephesians Ephesians 1, if you do want to flip there, but no pressure. Ephesians 1. Verses 5 through 8. It's actually starting in 4. Weird verse breakdown. 1818 if you want to follow along. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The narrow gate that Jesus is calling us to is to enter into God's family by grace through faith with nothing to offer God. Nothing to offer God. No record that we could possibly point to. The only record that we can point to entering into life with God under his rule is the perfect record we receive by grace for free from Jesus. It was just so fascinating to study this passage this week because on the front end, it's really kind of confusing. There's all these beautiful psalms. Uh, for, for example, Psalm 18, where it talks about, He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me. He set my feet on solid ground. And so there's all this language of God kind of taking us out of our constriction and bringing us in, into abundance and, and broadness. And so why is Jesus talking about the, the small gate, the narrow road? That leads to life. And this is just this really beautiful, narrow, spacious paradox. We talked about in the gray city where you can kind of have everything your way, if you will, ultimate Burger King commercial, I suppose, is that it it kind of lends us down to Napoleon's place where we're just alone. We're like wound into this one grievance that happened a while ago, and we're just stuck. The the spaciousness of being self-righteous or being self-sufficient Actually, in the end, constricts us immovably. Contrast that with being in a loving, trusting family. Are there boundaries? Yes. Do you have chores? Yes. Are there rules? Yes. Are you the boss? No. Can I get amen? <laughs> But think of the the spaciousness and freedom in in a family, within those boundaries, within that submission, within just receiving your place in the family by grace. Now there's intimacy. There's people who know you and love you as you are. There's people you can depend on and trust. The narrow gate is grace-based adoption, and it's the only way to experience life with God. Jesus is just really pounding this fact home, home as he ends the Sermon on the Mount. And the beautiful reality that that Scripture points us to is that we see that Jesus was crushed. Jesus became impossibly narrow as a man. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus, and yet he emptied himself of that glory to become like a man, to be a man, to become like us. Infinite God taking the form of finite man. Jesus himself, God in the, God became flesh, impossibly narrow. Why? So that he can know the spaciousness of everything being redeemed. The spaciousness of a new heaven and a new earth with you and me in it. Says for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus was crushed for my sin and for your sin got impossibly narrow to make a way for us to know know God by grace, through grace-based adoption. So what do we do with this? How might we apply this? Something of a growing passion of mine is to see how these lofty, Glorious gospel truths inter- intersect with our daily, daily lives. What are practical grace things that we can do? Because I can't just say, hey, go live in grace more. Just think about grace more. Try harder to be more dependent on grace. And I think what we can do is we can look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at some very clear instructions, re- very clear commandments that God, that God in the flesh, Jesus, gave us. I had two, I'm just going to talk about one, and it's the self-awareness test. Just before this passage, in chapter 7, verse 3, Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is Jesus, as our king and savior, saying, check out your planks, grow in self-awareness. A lot of descriptions, a lot of adjectives come to mind when I think of Christians as a whole, but self-awareness is not really one of them. But here we have our our king and savior, our Lord, saying, check out the planks that are in your eye. Now, there's lots of benefits of being self-aware, but the only one I'm trying to get at today is that this will make us take grace to the bank. There's no way to really look honestly at ourselves to be able to say, just, just say it. I have this issue. Early on in my marriage, the thing was anger. It took me so long to be able to say, I am an angry person. I would, I would try to weasel my way out of it. No, I'm just, I'm just sad or I'm just frustrated. Christians can't get angry. We're just frustrated all the time. So all these things, I just couldn't look at myself honestly and thank God that he had some people by the power of the Holy Spirit, got me to come home to that. Because there's no way out from it unless you can say it and see it honestly. Growing in in self-awareness makes us take grace to the bank. Because we don't have to judge ourselves. God already has, and in grace, he's given us a perfect record. So now we can look at our faults, our flaws, our ongoing issues, and name them. Name them plainly. We don't have to tie a bow on them. We don't have to talk about them like they were 10 years ago. (laughs) You know, we can struggle with them in real time. And then we ask God to transform that. So maybe for you, an application to, to grow in grace is to go to a close friend and say, if you could give me one piece of advice, what would it be? Or do you see any spots of unbelief in my heart? And just see what they say. Maybe that might be a step of grace. Maybe nothing happens. I'm not saying this is a silver bullet. But we've got to think of some ways that we can embody grace, that we can take grace to the bank and grow in what God says is true of us. I want to end with just bringing our minds to the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. This is in Luke 15. I think it's just such a powerful metaphor for what the Christian life is like, what what happens at the beginning when we become Christians and what happens every day for the rest of our life until we are made new and united with God. In the prodigal son, we see overt rebellion. What all of us do apart from Jesus, which we we look at God and we say, I want your stuff and not you. The prodigal son said, give me my inheritance now. I wish you were dead, I just want your stuff. I don't want a relationship with you, I want your money and your stuff. And then we go and we blow it on stuff that we think will help us. We think will make us happy. said he went to the far country and he threw crazy parties and spent it on prostitutes and feasts. If we were to kind of Protestant work ethic or middle-class american eyes the the what the prodigal son did it will blow it on our retirements and paying off our house and a nice riding tractor for our lawn or something just because you don't throw big parties doesn't mean we're not prodigal sons so we all of us both before we meet jesus and then all all the time afterwards we we're, we're tempted to say to god i want your stuff not you and then we take his stuff and we blow it on stuff that doesn't satisfy. And how does the prodigal son end up after he, he was trying to be God, after he was trying to uh, make his life okay on his own terms? He's broke, he's starving, working with pigs who had more food than he did. Said he said he was feeding the pig slop and he didn't even have any food and he wanted to eat the pig slop and he was not allowed to. These pigs were better off than the prodigal son. And one of my favorite sentences in all of scripture is, he came to himself. He came to himself. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? He sees the brokenness and the hopelessness and the spiritual poverty. I have nothing to offer. And he turns from the far country, from the pig slop, and returns to his father, knowing that he has no bargaining chips. He has nothing to offer the father. He says, just let me work for you. Just let me be your servant. Just let, just let me be a slave and try to pay you back. But the whole point of grace is what, is, the, is, is what the father does in response to the prodigal son. He sees him from a distance, and this established wealthy man picks up his robes, sprints through the town, and embraces his long-lost son, covered in pig slop, dirty and poor, with nothing to offer And puts clean clothes on him. And puts the ring signifying sonship on him. And throws him a huge party. Kills the fattened calf. All it took was the prodigal son coming to himself and returning to the father in a place of spiritual poverty. Spiritual bankruptcy. And he received grace. And this invitation is to all of us. If we haven't trusted in that free grace for the first time, that invitation goes out to us today. And then... Martin Luther said, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. All of the Christian life is coming to ourselves and returning to the Father. Every day, every hour, repenting of unbelief, repenting of our mistrust, and receiving every day, every hour, the loving embrace of our Father. Let me pray.